Amen. So it was the tenth day of the Muslim festival of Muharram. Uh, this is the day that's set apart to remember the murder of the grandson of Muhammad. And our family, uh, we were living in Mirzapur in India. We had gone into to, uh, town to spend, spend a, I think, have a meal with a friend of ours. We were on his rooftop, and we were looking as there was a procession of men walking down the streets. They had their shirts off, and they had these whips in their hands. And inside, uh, in every whip, there was it was encrusted with glass and with pieces of steel, and they were flagellating themselves repeatedly. And with each bloody stroke, they were shouting that what now we have become, has become known in our culture, Allahu Akbar. Over and over they were shouting, Allahu Akbar. My God is great, they were saying. And then I noticed another strange thing happening at a cross street down below. There was a young man, he took off his shirt, and he took four tube lights, and he laid them on the ground, and then he laid on top of these tube lights and arranged them across his back, and then he took a piece of plywood and he put it across his chest. And then from the cross street, I heard this motorcycle revving and revving and revving. And he comes shooting out of this cross street, headed right toward this man. And I'm thinking he's going to slow down, he's going to stop. But no, he accelerates as he goes across the piece of plywood, across this man's chest. And it goes pop, 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 pop. And those tiny shards of the fluorescent glass go digging into this man's back that gl- the uh, the gas that's in the fluorescent tube lights goes into those fresh wounds and this young man gets up and he shout- starts shouting again Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar my God is great and I watched this and I thought what kind of a God would require this of their followers this is not the God that I know you know the God I know the God of the Bible he drew me to himself with merciful loving kindness and he revealed that it's his sacrifice not mine that brings healing and and salvation and so this morning we're going to talk about the love of christ in the context of some other belief systems and i pray really i've been praying that you would understand that it's the love of christ that compels us it's the love of christ that compels us to do things in our community here and to go and serve as missionaries Overseas, Let me pray for you and with you right now. God, we are in this quaint little hamlet that has ice cream socials and wonderful Christmas programs and really nice youth fairs. And all around us, around the world, there are people who don't even know you exist. Or have a very distorted view of what you are. I pray today that your spirit will speak. Please, God, for the sake of those people, as well as ourselves, but and and for your sake, please speak that your children would do something. In the name of Jesus, amen. So... At the end of this message, I'm telling you up front what I'm hoping happens as you listen to this, okay? So I'm hoping that you actually are changed by listening to what I'm sharing this morning. Um, that this is not some nice message that you go and then we kind of forget all about it during gossip at Podluck. Okay? But that actually we do something about what we hear here. So, first and foremost, 
And I'm assuming if you're here on a Saturday, you've already done this. Maybe not. Or maybe you've just been playing around for a while. But I'm praying that you have, and if you haven't, that today you would decide to actually develop a living relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Okay? I I don't know where you're at, but that's my prayer. That's the first and foremost thing. Um... Because I believe with some of the information I'm going to share, you can actually make an intelligent decision to distinguish between what the God of the Bible offers and what other belief system offers. Okay, the second thing is, if um, I'm praying that your faith is strengthened, assuming that you've accepted Christ, that your faith is strengthened, and that um, today and going forward, you would actually express gratitude to God for what he's done for you. And, and do that consistently, regularly, actually doing that. Uh, we can get so caught up in doing just whatever. And I, I visit different churches and kind of a, uh, taking a pulse on the church. What kind of conversation is held at potluck? If we're at the tables today, I pray that you're expressing gratitude for whatever God's done for you this week, in your life, and, and just the fact that he would send his son to come and be our, our savior. And then the third thing is, and this is really uh, the crux of this, um, I want you to do something about those people you'll probably never meet unless you go. And that is pray about how can I do something to hasten the coming of Jesus amongst those group of people that have never heard the gospel before. You know, we had this cute little thing lined up here, and, and we could so easily say, well, I can't ever reach those people. Maybe you can Maybe there's something you can do. And I'm going to give you a couple suggestions uh, today. But I just want to encourage you to do something. Um, so I'm going to share you some, some biblical information. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the other major world religions. Give you a brief history of missions. Tell a couple of good stories. At least I hope they're good stories. And then encourage you to do something. So think about this question. Why would anybody be a missionary? Really? Why would anybody be a missionary? It just doesn't make any sense under normal circumstances, right? Okay, then part of that is why would someone choose to be a Christian? Well, I'd like to invite you to go to the scripture text that Patty read for us this morning. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Please turn in your Bibles there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's probably a Bible in the pew in front of you if you don't have one yourself. And uh, we're going to read parts of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. Okay, I believe that the Bible gives us an answer as to why someone would choose to become a follower of the carpenter of Galilee and why, if he calls us to do this, someone would actually become a missionary in some far-off land amongst a group of people that you don't know from Adam. All right. So let's start with verse 14. And this is really the theme of this message. For the love of Christ compels us. It compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. It's the love of Christ that compels us. We have to do something about this. Okay? There's another version that says it constrains us. Another version says the love of Christ controls us. And I really pray that that actually is true in my life. Do you pray that that's true in your life? That God's love actually controls you, compels you to do what you're going to do? Okay. So how do we get to a point where that actually is happening in our lives? 
Well, I think the next verse gives us a pretty good idea. Look at verse 15. That he died for all, that they which should live, not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. That is living for Christ and unto him that died for them and rose again. Okay, so I don't know. I I appreciate Pastor Kelly. I I listen to some of his sermons sometimes, but um, look at the cross. Every sermon, we should look at the cross. We should look at the love of God manifested in Jesus Christ, that he actually died. And in the context of all other world religions, this is so radical that, that this man who was God to teach us about the character of God, he died. And he didn't just die. He voluntarily agreed to be tortured, to endure the, the suffering for our shame and guilt and sin. And he hung on a cross, bleeding, swollen as a spectacle for everyone to see, not just on this planet, but in the whole universe. And so... Why did he do that? So we can be forgiven, so we can be healed, so we can actually have eternal life. You know, we can go through and hear this over and over and over. Every time we think about it, we should be awed at the love of God. It should compel us to do something. So what do we do for this? Well, according to what the Bible says, and I think what actually happens, we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him who, who died and was raised again. And then we live for others who don't know this. And what happens to those people who've never known this, and then they hear about the Savior, and and they, they fall in love with Jesus? That's what happens in verse 17 says. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. All things have become new. Have you ever seen somebody, when they first met meet Jesus, it's beautiful, isn't it? Do you remember that when, when it happened to you? Wasn't it great? Amen? I, I remember when I first accepted Christ, I was working at J.P. Morgan Chase Manhattan Bank in New York City. I was actually on vacation. And, and I met Jesus, and he, he forgave me, and he healed me. And I didn't even think about eternal life at that point. I just was weeping and weeping. I was so happy and just radiating joy. And I came back into my office, and there was a lady who worked with me. And she looked at me. She said, what happened to you? I said, well, what do you mean? She said, your face is glowing. You look like Moses come down from the mountain with God. I said, yeah, I accepted Jesus. She said, I know, I can see it. That should be our experience. Look to Jesus and then be transformed. Amen? The love of Christ compels us to do this. Okay? So, um, let's go back to the text here. Uh, Let's look at, jump down to verse 20, if you will. Okay? Now we, then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, and we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Now, we're sending out some missionaries today, and we would normally say, those are the ambassadors, right? Some of these people are going out for a year, at least a year. Others are going out for three years. Some are going out for eight, ten more years, longer than that. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of commitment. You got the Barron County Youth Fair here. You got a 36 foot high statue of Daniel. You've got the opportunity right here in your community to be ambassadors. Amen? Amen? Thank you very much. So, you don't have to go off to Booga Booga. You can just go over to the Barron County Youth Fair or your place of work, your neighbors. 
So this leads me to another story um, talking about the love of Christ compelling us to do something. And, and I, uh, I don't want to make some emotional appeal. I really don't like emotional appeals where they'll be like, bam, 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 and then you've got to do something. It should, it should happen. When we love Jesus, this should just happen. It should flow out of us, right? So um, I'm going to tell you three different stories. You heard one already. This, uh, the purpose of me telling you these stories is to contrast the different uh, worldviews relative to the love of Christ, which should compel us to do something for those people in those in other belief systems. Um, this story, I will tell you, it makes me look good, but that's not why I'm telling you it. I'm telling you it because it's a contrast between the two systems, okay? So, um, we lived in India, and uh, in the summer times, the, the months right before monsoon season, it could get as hot as 124 degrees in the shade, which is hot. And uh, we didn't have electricity more than four hours a day. So we had uh, little children, and so in the summertime I would take my wife and our girls and we would put them up in the mountains where it was much cooler, and then I would go back and perspire and work. <clears throat> and then halfway through the summer, I would go up and I would spend a week up there, uh, up in the mountains. And it would take me like a 24-hour train ride to get up there. So on one occasion, I'm on the train, and it's, as always in India, incredibly crowded, and I had reserved <clears throat> excuse me, a place to sleep in, in this low-class compartment, but it was at least a place to sleep. And uh, the way these work, I don't know if any of you have ever been in, in India, but there's a, a seat here, and then the backrest for that seat actually folds up in the middle of the night, so that becomes a middle seat, and then there's another place up here. So you actually have six places for people to sleep, and then there's one on the side. So I was settling into my, um, my place of sleeping, and this poor, emaciated-looking lady gets on the train, and she's got two little kids. One's about two years old. She's holding the other. Couldn't, couldn't be more than six months old. And, um, it, you know, the train is packed. And obviously this lady doesn't, I don't even know if she has a ticket, but um, she doesn't have a place to sleep. And so she takes out some newspaper, and she lays it down on the floor. And then she takes her, her dupatta, her shawl, makes a pillow out of it, and the two-year-old clings to her back. The, the, uh, the newborn stays close to her breast, and they just lay down in this newspaper. And I can tell you, trains in India are not what you call clean. And I'm looking at this lady, and I'm thinking, that could be my wife, because our daughters were about the same age, two and six months old. I'm like, that could be my wife. That's just, that's just wrong, you know? So uh, I said, I'm sorry, I... Would you please take my seat? Okay, she's like, what? You know, I said, yeah, yeah, please, you, know, you, you sit. So I always wore a shawl when it was really hot. I took my shawl off, rolled it up, made a pillow out of it, and laid down on the newspaper. And now there's this buzz going on in the train, like, oh, we can't let the foreigner do that. That's not right, you know. And um, so they said, hey, hey, you, you come here, come here. And I was like, no, no, really, it's okay. This lady, she, she shouldn't have to sleep on the floor with the kids. And... Um, they said, no, no, it's okay. So this man, he, he, had, uh, he had three births, sleeping births. His wife was sharing with their small child, and then his son had one, and he had one. So he went and he shared with his son, and then he gave me the one on the bottom for me to sleep in. Of course, I was very grateful, but I didn't want him to feel pressure to do that. Anyway, so we all go to sleep, and uh, early the next morning, just, just before dawn, I wake up, and I figure, okay, I'm going to have my devotional time. 
<clears throat> excuse me, and I noticed somebody's sharing my birth with me. And I, I thought, oh, surprise. So here's a, um, an elderly sadhu. A sadhu is a Hindu holy man who's renounced the world and he wanders around in an orange robe begging. And, and, uh, but this is a very well-educated man. So um, again, here the backrest had lifted up and so that's become the middle. So you have to sit like this on the bottom, right? So he's sitting there like this. I'm going to sit there and have worship and I'm trying to do that. And uh, this holy man and I start to have a conversation and um, pretty soon he's complaining how uncomfortable this is. And, and he thought he should wait. we should wake up this guy who's there with his child, the man who gave me his seat, because this is uncomfortable for him and he's a holy man. <clears throat> I said, no, no, just let him sleep. It's okay. He said, no, 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 I'm a holy man. This is inconvenient for me. And in fact, this man's very rude. He should wake up and put this down so we wouldn't have to be uncomfortable. And I said, I don't, I don't think he's rude, actually. Um, he was kind enough to let me have his seat last night. We, you know. So um, I said, by the way, which of the birth is yours? Where are you supposed to be sleeping? And he said, well, I, I don't have a reservation. <laughs> I said, really, where's your ticket? He said, I'm a holy man. I don't have to have a ticket. Now, with that comment, there's a man sleeping on this hand. He's no longer sleeping, and he's not going to hold his peace anymore either. He's, he, goes, he wakes up from his pseudo-slumber, and he says to the holy man, he says, Hey, shut up. Just shut up. You are embarrassing our religion and our country. In fact, why don't you just leave? Leave now. Get out. Get out. And so the humiliated holy man picks up his bag and sheepishly exits our car so he can go grace his presence with someone else. And... Uh, <clears throat> when he's gone, the man who had shooed the holy man away asked me, he said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And uh, he said, you know, I've always wanted to learn more about Jesus. Do you think you could get me a Bible? I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. So he gave me his address, name and address, and uh, I went and I got him a Hindi Bible, and I mailed it to him. And uh, I said, I'm thankful to be able to share this Bible with you. Please read it. Please pray and then read it that God will bless you. And then um, I'm trying to learn to live my life like Jesus. And then a few weeks later, I got a thank you note in the, call, in, in the mail. And it says, thank you so much for the Bible. I will read it and I will try to live like Jesus too. Amen? The Bible is is an amazing book. I mean, it's just an amazing book. It is the source of religious truth for Christians, right? Amen? Here in the U.S., we have Bibles. Is there anybody here who doesn't have a Bible of their own? We all have access to the Bible, but so many people in our country who have access to the Bible are dependent upon the Internet for spiritual information. We have a treasure here. And, and when I compare it to the other belief systems, I want you to understand this, how precious the Bible really is. Other religions have other books that they use to derive their spiritual information. Okay? And we'll talk about those here briefly, but <clears throat> how do you know about their God? Or how do they know about their God? What are their principles for living? And how, what happens to them when they die? What, is there an eternity? Or what, what just exactly is involved there? So, for example, Islam 
the number of, of adherents to Islam is over 1.8 billion people. Okay? This religion in particular is very um, strong emphasis on the religious text. The text is called the the Quran, that's right, okay? And according to their teachings, not my word, their teachings, the only legitimate Quran is in Arabic. I, I was checking with a Arabic-speaking former Muslim who's now a Christian, and he told me, yeah, any other translation is not considered valid. And this is really unfortunate because the overwhelming majority of Muslims don't speak Arabic. The largest Muslim country in the world is Indonesia. They don't speak Arabic there. Second largest Muslim country in the world is India. They don't speak Arabic there. And then Pakistan and Bangladesh. I can't remember which one's three and four. None of those places speak English. Or they don't speak English either. They don't speak Arabic. And then, think about this. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to do this objectively. The Quran is based on the visions of one man. So you're, if you're going to follow, you're going to follow the visions of one man. And his name's Muhammad. He didn't know how to read or write. That's okay. He had visions. He was a merciless warrior. And he was actually quite immoral, if you study his life. Um, I didn't know this until I was talking with my former Muslim friend. The Quran wasn't written down until two generations after Muhammad died. Did you know that? I didn't know that. So anyone who's following that belief system is essentially trusting their salvation to the visions that one man had that weren't written down until two generations after he died. And according to their belief systems and these sayings, these visions that he had, <clears throat> salvation is achieved through good works that honor the deity of this system, which go so far as to include slaughtering people who don't believe the same way you do. That's a little bit different than the God of the Bible, wouldn't you say? Amen? Okay, then there are 500 million people who follow what they understood to be the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama. And uh, the problem with following Buddhist teachings is, I, uh, have you ever played the game telephone here? You know what I'm talking about when I play telephone? So I'm going to go over here and I'm going to talk to Pastor Indy. I'm going to whisper something in his ear. But before I do that, I will drink water. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'm going to whisper something in Pastor Indy's ear. He's going to turn around and tell the brother there, who's going to whisper it, and we're going to... By the time we're done, at the end of the sermon, John is going to tell me exactly, word for word, what I told Pastor Indy, right? Is that true? It never works that way, Right? The sayings of Buddha were not written down until 450 years after he died. Try playing telephone for 450 years. We don't really know what he said. Okay? I, there are certain principles, there are certain principles in Islam, certain principles in, in Buddhism that are good. Okay? But we, the fact of the matter is, we don't know what Buddha said. It's just, that's just reality, okay? Then, then there's the Hindu beliefs, okay? And there's more than a billion people who follow the Hindu religion. And there's lots of holy books in Hinduism. You've got the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Mahabharata, a section of that book called the Bhagavad Gita. That's some that people in the West know. None of those books, none of them, are true. 
They are all fiction. They're all made-up stories that weave philosophy and some degree of truth in them, but they're actually not true. There's no historical evidence to suggest that any of the deities that they put forward in these books are actually true. So, and according to their belief, salvation is based upon your own good works. Only Christianity, okay, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, only Christianity is based on what God has done, is doing, and will do to save mankind. Amen? The Bible teaches that God came down out of heaven as a man to die so that man might live. That's radical. It's so, so radically different than what anything else teaches. Okay? Here's the other important point. The source for this belief system is a book that has been proven to be historically accurate. It was written by about 45 guys over a period of 1,500 years. And when the archaeologists go and play in the sandbox, they keep uncovering things that demonstrate, oh yeah, this happened, it says it in the Bible. God is working in human history for the salvation of his people. It's a legitimately true source of information. So think about this. How important is this, okay? Just on pure logic. Forget spiritual implications. Just pure logic. If you want to understand religious or spiritual truth, don't you think that the book that you're going to use to find spiritual truth should be true? Duh. But it's the only book. The Bible is the only book that has that. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. They don't know that. Buddhists don't know that. Muslims don't know that. They don't realize this. We who have this information, who love Jesus, we should be compelled to go and tell them. Amen? Really? I mean, would you just pick up a book of fiction and base your, your religious beliefs on fiction? No, of course not. So... I want to share just a brief history uh, lesson on, on, on missions, and uh, this is really brief. Um, I really encourage you, pick up missionary biographies, great stories on how God has worked through men and women in, in history, and you get to see God do amazing things. Talk to me afterward. I'm happy to recommend some books to you. Um, if you were here for first service, by all means, pick up Adoniram Judson's book. I'm going to mention here in a minute. If you want to read about what God is doing in missions today, not just in history, please, please, please sign up to get our magazine, Frontiers Magazine, AFM Magazine. We have a booth out there. It's free. We'll send it to you, okay? So, modern missions began as the 1,260-day prophecy was drawing to a close. That's not coincidental. No other church understands this, okay? The 1260-day prophecy, you know, time, times, half a times, as that's drawing to a close, God is stimulating his people to do something. And so almost as if right on schedule, 1793, a shoemaker who is absolutely brilliant named William Carey, he taught himself Greek, he taught himself Latin, and he taught himself Hebrew while making shoes in England. And in 1793, he left to go to India to share the gospel. And 35 years later, when he laid his body down in the soil, his grave is there in Sarampur, uh, just north of Calcutta in India, 
he and his assistants had translated the Bible, check this out, 35 languages. This is humanly impossible. You want to talk about the gift of tongues? Really? Humanly impossible, okay? His influence, he, there were reports coming out of India, what he was doing, what God was doing through, through that team there. And it got back to the United States. There was a group of young people from Williams College. I've been to this place. It's not unlike Andrews University, except it's gone pagan. Okay? This is in Massachusetts. Five guys were on their way to prayer meeting. Prayer meeting. Did anybody hear prayer meeting? Oh, yeah, see you on prayer meeting. Okay. So five guys are on their way to prayer meeting, and a thunderstorm hits. So what do they do? They jump under a, uh, a bale of hay. They have a, into a haystack. Okay, in 1804, it's called the Haystack Prayer Meeting. Out of that one prayer meeting was started the first foreign mission society in the United States and the American Bible Society from that one prayer meeting. Can you imagine what would happen if you come to prayer meeting? What might happen from Village Church? Seriously, I want to challenge this church. I really appreciate when I come to prayer meeting, I want to challenge this church to become the church that everybody knows. Yeah, they send out missionaries. Really? You know, you're young people. Yeah, we raise our children to be missionaries. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it make PMC jealous? Oh, no, sorry. (laughs) Maybe people from in there, young people would come over here because they want to be missionaries. I'm just kidding. Sorry, Dwight. But we're friends. It's okay. All right. And then, okay, so we're going through history. Then what happens? Then there's the great fulfillment. You know what the great fulfillment is, right? I think Adventists call this by the wrong name. It happened in 1844. We call it the Great Disappointment because we look at it from the perspective of earth. But if you look at it from the perspective of heaven, it's the great fulfillment. Jesus is moving. Jesus is moving. He's going to fulfill his plan of salvation. Amen? Okay, and then about the turn of the century into the 20s, there's uh, Dwight Moody and a bunch of other people start this thing called the student volunteer movement. More people go out as missionaries in that time period than any time in history. And that's including within Adventism. Okay, that's when uh, Daniels and Uriah Smith, not Uriah Smith, Spicer, W.A. Spicer and, and uh, Daniels were the G.C. presidents, and they just moved people out. And that's where... And let me ask you, other than the Brazilians, and you can raise your hand too, but how many of you were not from this country originally, or your parents are not from this country originally? Okay, a fair number of you. How did that happen that you're, you're here? It's because missionaries went to those countries, and it happened typically at the turn of the 20th century. Okay? Radical, radical mission movement. And then World War II happens and pretty much stops. Funding stops. People are preoccupied with other things. By the mid-1970s, uh, cross-cultural missionaries are pretty much dried up because with, with World War II, colonialism collapses and people become independent nations and missionaries are sent home. And it's right be- that the national people should take care of their own churches. They, they should be responsible for that. But it leaves a big gap because there's still a lot of places a huge segment of the population of the world that still hasn't heard the gospel. And so, in 1985, a young man who is now a member of your church named Clyde, good morning, Clyde, is sitting in class. He writes a paper, and his teacher says, oh, that's a very nice paper. Why don't you do something about it? And in in that paper, he describes starting a missionary organization that focuses on reaching unreached people groups. And 
Voila, Adventist Frontier Missions is born, starting in 1985. Why, does it, why did it get started? Why does it still exist? Because the love of Christ compels us. We have to go, seriously, if you were a Muslim, wouldn't you want to know about Jesus? If you were worshiping an idol and you, knew, you didn't know that there was a living God who, could, who loves you, who answers your prayers, wouldn't you want somebody to come and tell you that? So AFM gets started. And, and the love of Christ compels us, controls us, go, pushing us forward to go to these people. And uh, because there's, this is a rhetorical question amongst Adventists, but how many of you think Jesus is coming soon? Amen? 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 He's not. Now, how do I know that? Because he told me. Now, some of you know I used to hear voices, but I'm not talking about that. Okay? Matthew 24, 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Friends, there's, there's almost 2 billion people out of 7.4, 7.5, who still haven't heard the gospel. So until they hear the gospel, we don't get to go home. But I believe it's going to happen soon. And it, it can happen in one generation if we are deliberate and intentional about making that happen. Okay? Since we got started, that is AFM, we sent out about 200 career missionaries, 500 student missionaries. The, still, the need is still tremendous. So what do we do? Recently, we started an office in South Africa. We have started an office in Brazil. Um, we're looking at starting an office in Australia, looking at starting an office in Korea. Why? To try to find young people. If you're a young person here and you think the Holy Spirit may be talking to you, he is. Okay? To go. To go. To finish this work. Amen? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So if you hear the Holy Spirit speaking today, please talk to somebody. I'm happy to talk to you. Talk to one of the missionaries who are going out. Ask for information. If you say, I think God's asking me to do something, because I think God's asking you to do something, and you say, but I don't think I'm supposed to go, that's fine. Sign up to get the magazine. Okay? When the magazine comes in the mail, you pick one or two families, and you pray for those people consistently. I, I think I would be dead if I didn't have people praying for me while we were in India. And then write them a letter. Oh, how sweet it is to get letters from people from back on the other side of the, the planet saying, you know, we're praying for you. Really, please do that. And if you want to give money, hey, happy day. We like money too. It takes money to send people out. Amen? Okay. The love of Christ compels some to go, some to give. Everybody can pray. Is that true? Everybody can pray. We had a lady, <coughs> friend of ours, she was in a wheelchair. She had cerebral palsy. And all she could move was her hand. But she promised that she would wheel her wheelchair out under this oak tree and pray for our family every day. You can pray, please. All right, I'm going to close with a final story. I started out with an illustration about a Muslim man, actually a group of Muslim men, who needed to know the Savior. And they were flagellating themselves because they didn't know the Savior had been crucified. We talked about a Hindu man whose heart, in his heart, wanted to know about Jesus and then wanted to live like Jesus. Now I'm going to talk about a Buddhist monk and a lama and the Savior that they did not know. So, I was taking a jeep up this mountain from about uh, from the train station, which was about sea level. We were going up about 7,000 feet up in the Himalayas. 
And I was going to the Dali Monastery, uh, which is right under Kanchenjunga. Kanchenjunga is the third highest mountain in the world. Nobody's ever heard of it, but um, it's really beautiful. Anyway, one of the guys in the Jeep with me is a monk from this monastery. So I'm curious. We start talking. And uh, he told me for the past month he's been on a retreat. I said, oh, what do you do? And he said, well, he gets up at 4, between 3 and 4 in the morning. And imagine, this is what he was doing, okay? So imagine there's a, a gilded statue of Buddha there. And he said, I would get up and I would prostrate myself before the statue of Buddha. And I would do this 1,100 times. He had absolutely no body fat. So, <clears throat> then he would have tea. Then he would do it 1,100 times more. Then he would have breakfast. Then he would do it 1,100 times more. And then he would have tea. And then he would do it 1,100 times more. And then he would have lunch. And then he would go to bed. And I was like, wow. Why are you going through this rigorous round of spiritual exercise? He actually said this. I, I did this because I am hoping that someday I might be forgiven. Wow. Maybe someday I'll be forgiven? Wow. Do, do we just take the grace and mercy of God for granted or what? So we get to the monastery where he was a monk. And uh, I gave him a New Testament. I had one in Tibetan. And, um, and then I went off to meet one of the two lamas, the head lamas. These are the guys who were in charge of the, the monastery. And um, according to Buddhist mythology, um, the lama is actually a reincarnation of a previous person. And this young man who I was going to meet was a guy named Tukse Rinpoche. That was his title. Um, and I had met him before. When I first met him, he was 16. Now I'm meeting him two years later. And as I walked in, he said, Oh, it's so good to see you again. He remembered me. Which I was surprised. And uh, we had a nice conversation about different topics. Now he's 18, basically working on a PhD in Tibetan Buddhism so that ultimately he can become the head of his own monastery. And um, I, I mentioned to him that I rode up the mountain with a monk from his monastery. And... Um, and so I, I asked him, I said, you know, how do you get forgiveness in Tibetan Buddhism? And I was surprised. Um, he was honest and innocent. He said, um, I don't know. They haven't taught me yet. I said, wow. So our conversation, you know, I'm praying throughout this conversation. We continued talking, and, uh, and then God answered my prayer. Because this young lama, genuinely, genuinely wanting to know, uh, said, hey, I was in the market in town and I saw this statue of Jesus hanging and dying on the cross. Who killed Jesus? And I prayed silently and I said, well, there's, there's two answers to your question. Uh, literally, historically, the Romans and the Jews killed Jesus. But also, and then I, I leaned in close to him, like I'm trying to lean in close to you and I'm hoping the Holy Spirit's leaning into your heart. And I said, but but also, you killed Jesus. Ooh. His eyes got really big. And I said, have you ever done anything wrong? And he looked around, because we, apparently we were being watched. He said, mm-hmm. I said, well, Jesus never did anything wrong. 
He lived a perfect life. And he was nailed to the cross for your sins and for my sins. And you put your faith in his sacrifice, and that's how God forgives you. And I just let it sit quietly, and I gave him a Bible in Tibetan, and we prayed. Let us pray. God, I pray for Tukse Rinpoche. I pray for the man who foolishly, ignorantly laid down on top of the tube lights, for the man in the train who asked for the Bible. I pray for the man sitting in a pew in village church this morning who is burdened with his own personal private burdens. For each of these people, for the lady who is concerned about her children, the student who's fearful for the future of their schooling, show yourself strong that you are the Savior in this life and for eternity. We thank you that you are the only true God and that you are love and that your love compels us to share this with others. In Jesus' name, amen.